I don't think people realize how much work goes into making sure we're using products correctly. The, the science that goes behind the options that we are given. The, no, none of these things are chosen lightly. Welcome to The First 16, your podcast about innovations and innovators in the agricultural and food sector in Canada. We took a little hiatus to prepare a new season, and this episode is going to start with a bang. Today, we're going to have a good, well-rounded discussion about pesticides and a frequently misunderstood thing called maximum residue limits, or MRLs. I'm your co-host, Kirk Finken, and I'm pleased, really pleased, to introduce to you our new co-host, Marie-France Gagnon. She's a senior policy analyst with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada with many years of experience in our sector and in government. So welcome to the team, Marie-France. Thank you, Kirk. I am so happy to be here and I am really looking forward to diving into ag innovation stories and the people behind them. People like our two guests today. What I like about these two guests, Kirk, is that they have two very different jobs in the ag sector, very independent of each other, but both work to feed the world in a healthy and sustainable way. One of them is Brian Rideout. He's a fruit and vegetable producer from Southern Ontario. He applies pesticides and other crop protection products on his produce. And he is also highly engaged in this topic with his growers associations. And our other guest is Fred Bissonnette, Executive Director of the Pest Management Regulatory Agency, or PMRE. It's an agency under the umbrella of Health Canada. PMRE is the agency that determines what pesticides can be used in Canada, how they are used, and what are the maximum residue limits that can exist on food. The PMRA's sole mandate is to protect human and environmental health. We're going to start on the farm today with uh, Brian Rideout because he produces the food we eat. He has a direct connection with the consumer. It's a, a multi-generational farm. Right now, um, there's three generations working together to farm it my son, my daughter, myself, and my, my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law. We have multiple family members um, still pitch in, like my wife, who's a nurse, she spends her vacations here on the farm, helping out with harvest and packing and grading. We grow strawberries, cherries, sweet and tart cherries. We grow tomatoes, peaches, nectarines, pears, apples, and winter squash. Um, and since that's not enough work, um, <laughs> can you describe your extracurricular activities, you know, the associations, the other hats that you wear? So I am the vice chair of the Ontario Apple Growers. I am a regional director for the Ontario Apple Growers. I am the crop protection chair or section chair for the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association here in Ontario. And I am the member of the Fruit and Vegetable Growers of Canada's Crop Protection Advisory Group. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about your role with the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association too? Crop protection just happens to be something I enjoy studying and looking at and understanding more. We bring the grower view or perspective to those topics. It's working on the resolutions that come out of the AGM and working on issues that come up during the season. The interesting part about the OFVGA 
is I get the opportunity to work with federal representatives, not only provincial representatives, a lot of people from Ag Canada and from Health Canada that work on our crop protection tools. That's an interesting mix. I mean, you know, obviously you've got a particular interest in it. I'm just wondering, is that interest, you know, coming from the fact that you are, you know, your background is environmental science? So it's interesting. I, I studied environmental engineering um, in college. Uh, so I'm an environmental engineering technologist is what they'd call me. It was like a, <laughs> a light bulb moment uh, when I started the farm 25 years ago, because I, I do not come from the farming background. It all kind of came together when I started the farm. I realized how much chemistry, how much science there is in farming and how much technology we use in this process of producing a piece of fruit or a seed or something for people to consume. The environmental science part of me definitely uh, is triggered when agriculture, because I, I love stewardship. Okay, so let's talk about the pesticide use and practices on your farm and how they've changed over the years. Yeah, oh wow, pesticide use in the farm. It's evolved and it's ever evolving on our farm. The use or practices on our farm have changed very dramatically from 25 plus years ago when I started farming, farming with my father-in-law. Uh, we've gone from harsher chemistries to low risk chemistries. We're taking that approach instead of using those hard on the environment chemistries, we're able to now use low risk chemistries that are more beneficial to the environment and allow the biodiversity of the farm to increase. Can we drill down just a little bit more on that evolution? Uh, because it's not just about the pesticide products themselves, right? It's, it's the entire approach that's changed. So we've always educated ourselves. We go to conferences, we go to um, International Fruit Tree Association meetings. We go to all these things and they, they started talking about this thing, which was called integrated pest management. And everything's a pest to us. So a disease is a pest, a bug is a pest, an animal is a pest. We, we simplify it and we call it a pest. So this is where we get into pest management. And that's where you go out, you look for populations and you start basically monitoring and you look for thresholds that trigger the activity. Then what we do is we throw in the integration portion. We are integrating tools to help us control or suppress those pests. As everything evolves over, over time, and like I say, this is a living process. I became a director with the Ontario Apple Growers, was asked to go to minor use priority setting meetings in Ottawa, and I went, wow, there's a whole new world out there when it comes to the use of pesticides. Okay, we still use the insecticides. We still use the fungicides that are conventionally or synthetically produced. But then we started throwing in little things like a product called Dipel, which would control loopers and cauliflower. And we were finding we were getting loopers in there. And one of the solutions that came up was, you know, you should maybe use Dipel which is a organics type product. And that evolved into, we had a pest in peaches um, because now they came up with this, this product called pheromones. And those are just little tubes and um, you just hang them on a tree. And these things release slowly over time. 
this pheromone in the air. Uh, the male bugs can't find the uh, females because the air is full of their pheromone um, and they die before their life cycle. So that just brings the population further and further down. We're using technology to interrupt the breeding cycle of that pest. You know, they're still there actually, but they're at such low populations that um, they're actually sustaining uh, beneficial pests. And now the beneficial pest population is actually controlling them for you. Um, and then we started using a garlic extract and to, to control a disease called scab on apples. It also controls, helps control a disease called fire blight because uh, the, the conventional stuff I just found didn't cut it. So again, we, we, we're, we're evolving. We're, we're using these new products. And now pesticide use on our farm has become a, a, a really interesting mix of using biopesticides and conventional pesticides. Uh, it's, and it's changing how we keep the farm healthier. I don't know how else other than describe it as health. We're able to balance everything off a little bit better in the farm by using products that are just softer. Can you explain to us what are your personal concerns about pesticides use? So I mentioned earlier, we're a multi-generation farm. We, we want to make sure when, we, when we're picking pesticides or using these products on the farm that we're, we're thinking of the health of, of the people that work with our produce, the kids, right, that are out there my workers that are out there we want to make sure we're picking products that they feel comfortable being around i have spent a lot of time educating my workers that we're using products that are healthy for the plant and healthy for them it's not going to hurt them the interesting part of all that is our consumers who come to our firm when they ask me do you use pesticides and i look them straight in there yep i use pesticides I use synthetic and natural pesticides on our farm. And I explained to them what it is. I explained to them integrated pest management. And I loved, love it when I look in the car or when I look over and there's their child with them and their child is already eating the peach or the apple and the juice is running down the kid's chin and the kid's like, I want another one. And that ended up being kind of an interesting realization that what we grow tastes good and people want right because the 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 did the flavor profile change because we're using lower risk products i don't know and so it, it really does help the other part i've noticed is the health of the the agro system that we grow in by making choices that we have um we've seen organic matter increase on our farm and organic matter is something that soil needs. The plants really love it. We've seen an increase in certain parameters that allow the plant to be able to use the nutrients better that's in the soil. Because we've made choices that keep the, the soil healthy, keeps the water healthy, keeps our plant healthy, and keeps the food that we consume healthy. Wow, that's a 100% win-win when you see it like that. And what are the things that most consumers misunderstand about pesticide use? I, I think what they misunderstand is the, the choices we make. 
it takes very careful consideration to choose a product that will work on your farm. I don't think of products by names. I don't think of products by active ingredients. Um, I actually think of products by modes of action. So, cause I'm always worried about resistance management on the farm, right? We need to balance that with the needs of our plant. Okay, man, we've changed technology so much on the farm that our spray is very pinpoint. Our sprayers are designed to keep our, our materials in the tree and to get the best out of the product that we use. We want to make sure that we're controlling the pest, the disease, the weed. And then we are constantly evaluating the results and data. Oh my word, the, the amount of data I collect in a season. So if now we talked about maximum residue limits, what does that term mean for you? On a label of a product that we have, Um, it tells us how much we can use per application. And then it tells us how much we can use in the whole season. So it's, an, it's, it's the active ingredient. That product that actually works to control the pest is the active ingredient. And we have limits in a very general way that we can use the maximum amount of that active ingredient. So for me, it means monitoring how much actual, actual, actual active ingredient, that's a lot of A's there, we use in a season. So it's adapting your practices to ensure that uh, at the uh, end of the season, when the product is eaten by consumers, that it's below those uh, maximum residue levels, if I understood correctly. Yes, exactly. We actually hold back that last application a lot of times. If it, if it says that we're allowed to use it 10 times, for instance, and we know that's a really good product, we may only actually use that product six, seven times because it's working. We'll stop using it because we don't want that product to become um, resistant to the pest. We also know that if there's an escape, if the population starts to increase, we've got that product still in our back pocket, that tool in our toolbox that we can take out and get control again so that it doesn't have an economic harm to my farm. The economic threshold has changed drastically for us as producers. We do not have the room for an imperfect piece of fruit. I know you can go to the store and buy an imperfect bag of apples. Uh, if you want to have more imperfect apples, come to my farm. I will gladly give you as many imperfect apples as I can um, because we actually field grade those out so that we only have a very low volume of them, a very low volume of them in our bins or in our packs. So that way the, the consumer gets the best and we get paid um, our return on investment for the use of our products is, is nice. Again, I, I, I don't know how well the general pub public knows how much work, how much science, Ag Canada, Health Canada goes into the products we use. 
How do you personally choose the crop protection product you use on your farm? I do side-by-side -side trials. I take it and put it against my known products, the products that I know work the best on my farm, and put it right beside it. And I do that all over on different varieties, different areas of the farm, so that I can, my own science then proves the efficacy because everybody's farm is different. Everybody's soil is different. Everybody's environment is different. So can you explain to us what you saw in the last 20 years about the biodiversity on your farm? How has it evolved? How different it is now? We don't have a lot of urbanization. Um, we have some. Uh, urbanization is changing the farms. Yes, people have cleared woodlots and but then there's other people re replanting woodlots and that changes what moves in and out of our orchards and i love seeing biodiversity on my farms i love seeing all these natural pollinators uh we have no need for squash bees by the way on our farm we have so many burrowing solitary bees that pollinate squash um so we never bring in bees for squash We bring in bees for our apples because it's a very quick time. So I'm seeing like uh, what we call sweat bees um, in and out of our orchards, uh, seeing the populations of predatory pests in our orchards increase. Population of, and variety of birds on our farm is just through the roof. The, the, I can tell you so many funny stories about what we do when we pick peaches. Uh, do you know that a bat hanging off a tree looks like a peach? Uh, so you, you find, um, oh, snakes fall out of trees, uh, uh, but we get like bugs falling out of trees and landing on you. So we get these things called assassin bugs. They're a predatory bug that fall on you and they love falling into the collar of your shirt and they give you a little sting. Uh, ladybugs bite too, by the way. Yeah. So I've seen that increase. Unfortunately, the biodiversity of weeds is also increasing. So we're changing uh, some of our practices there as well now. Kind of get out there and I, I like to see population dynamics change. It is fun to see that occurring and on our farm. When we first talked on the phone, Brian, you spoke about a certain culture in farming, a, a certain characteristic that you find in farmers. Yeah, farmers, starkly honest. Um, they don't like to lie. They don't like to make it up. Um, if you want to find out you're doing something wrong, ask a farmer. He'll gladly tell you. Um, he'll also gladly tell you that what he did wrong. If you find the right farmer, uh, again, I belong to the apple community. Um, probably the most sharing community there is, is the apple growers of Canada. I know apple growers, uh, because I am an apple grower. I know growers from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, all the way out to BC and they're friends. And if I have a problem, if I have a question, I can call them up and ask them. So there's a strong culture of learning, improvement, and transparency. What else do consumers not know about farmers, especially regarding pesticide use? We are also in Ontario required to maintain our grower pesticide card. So every five years, you have to write a test and take a course that allows you to use the products that we apply to our trees. They teach us in those courses about pollinator safety. They teach us about drift control. They teach us about safe handling. They teach us about worker safety. All those things we learn 
I attend the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association, um, or sorry, the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Growers Conference in uh, Niagara. And these are premier events that we bring in the best in the world. And they bring in so much knowledge. We have, we have had presenters from all over talk about how to spray, how to grow, how to, how they farm in their country. We have researchers giving presentations. We have farmer panels who will sit up there and tell you what he's done. Um, and you get to go out and try that. Um, this year we had one um, because of a reduction of a group M pesticides. We had a panel discussion that had a pathologist, a grower that grows organic and conventional, an organic grower, and then uh, myself who combines all of them on a panel. So we were able to talk about the things we do on our farm and educate. It was a standing room only room. It was amazing. Right. All these guys and girls um, are there to learn. And yeah, you, you can't ask for a better community to belong to than the, than the community of farming. Manny Frost, that painted quite a detailed picture of integrated pest management practices on, on a fruit and vegetable operation. And Brian gave us some good insights into the overall evolution of pesticide use, not only on his farm, but in the sector. So, you know, I think it's a good time in this episode to hear from the government regulator, from Fred Bissonnette at Health Canada, to learn exactly how they determine which pesticides can be used and how they can be used long before they even get to the market. And I also want to learn about that very easy to misunderstand term they use, maximum residue limits or MRLs. Thank you for joining us, Fred. Before we talk about maximum residue limits, what we call MRLs, can you explain the risk assessment process by which Canada determines safe levels of pesticide use? Yeah, so uh, thank you for the question. Uh, first, I want to point out that uh, today we'll be focused on the, uh, the diet, so the exposure via food. Uh, we do look at other things like uh, the exposure to the environment, uh, does the product work, our workers like the farmers expose and is it like an acceptable risk. But again, today we'll focus on the, uh, uh, the aspect of food. Uh, so we first, we start basically by looking at several studies uh, that identifies the toxicological property of the pesticide. So, uh, for example, does it absorb through the skin? Is a part of the body more sensitive than other, like the liver? Uh, at what dose do we see these effects? Uh, we look at both short-term studies and long-term studies. So short-terms uh, uh, would be like, do you become, can you become allergic if your skin is exposed to it? Long-term studies are things like cancer, uh, reproduction. Are children more affected than like adults, for example? And from these studies, our scientists identify the highest dose that causes no effects on animals. So we basically have like a series of dosage. And the, the highest dose that causes no effect is usually the one that's picked. And then we apply safety factors of at least 100. Sometimes it goes to 1,000 or more. Uh, so in short, we take the dose that has no effect, apply 
100 to 1000 safety factor and that sets the limit to which a human can be exposed. For example, if, you, uh, if one gram a day is the dose of no effect in the animal, we'll set the dose at 10 milligrams, for example, or one milligram if it's a 1000 safety fold. Uh, after those properties, tox properties are determined, uh, we conduct an exposure assessment to uh, where we look at the diet. So how much of the pesticide we may consume via the food we eat, the water we drink. Uh, it looks at all the particular crops that are on the label of the pesticide, and it's both eating each day and over a lifetime. Uh, we also look at whether the pesticide can concentrate as the food is prepared. So not all food is eaten directly uh, as it's reaped, like an apple you eat directly, but canola, it usually comes from a seed that you extract the oil. So we look at whether during the oil extraction, if the pesticide can concentrate. And then we look at all these different source, food of source, uh, food, sorry, food sources together, and we compare the safety limit. If it is exceeded, users won't make it. We will basically not allow them on the market. But if it's within the boundaries of the safety limit, then the use would be allowed. Okay, that is a super complicated scientific process. But can you explain to me how do MRLs fit into this? So MRL are essentially the highest amount of pesticide residue that may remain on food uh, after the pesticide has been used as per the label. So it's not it's not really a safety a maximum safety per se. It's really if you follow the label, you apply it to the maximum like uh, quantity frequency as late as you can as per the label on the uh, on the on the crop. Uh, so how much is expected to be left? So it's really a measure as the pesticide being been used properly. So that is not, ex if it's exceeded, it's not necessarily a risk issue, but it really is if it's exceeded, the farmer may not have followed the label. So that is a compliance tool uh, for us. Uh, it's basically the worst case scenario. It's very rare that the farmers will apply the maximum frequency, the maximum amount, and very late in the season as per the label. Typically they will rotate. Uh, with other pesticide or the pest pressure may not be the same from year to year. Uh, and it's also done, like the test is done at the, uh, once the, uh, the fruit is reaped, uh, like it's taken from the apple tree, for example. Whereas when you buy your food at the grocery store, there's been time between the farmer picking it up and being making its way to the grocery store. So there's time for it to dissipate, for example, the UV light from the sun might degrade the pesticide. So essentially like the, the MRL represents the maximum you can find at the farm. In fact, usually there's a lot less uh, when you, uh, on, on the, the food you buy at the grocery store. As a tool for international trade, how are MRLs used? So MRL are used internationally to make sure the food that is being imported in a country meets the country's standard. Or if you're an exporting country, that you export the food that meets the importing country's requirement. So if, for example, if there's, uh, if you grow something in Canada and you want to ship to Europe uh, and they don't have an MRL for that product, you, you, the farmer will likely have to choose a different pesticide because if it reaches Europe and they do a test and they find a pesticide is not supposed to be there, they will basically return it or dispose of it. So farmer, it's, it's really for farmers, to, it's a tool for farmers to make sure that when they select in their toolbox the different pest control products that they need that they have in mind the importing country. Another aspect is like Canada is a northern country. We don't grow around like food around the year. Uh, so if we need to import in the winter, 
these MRLs help like Americans, like for California, for example, shipping strawberries to us uh, and make sure that they follow like Canadian regulations. So understanding that this is a regulation, can you explain when and where does Canada change the regulation for MRLs? I mean, how often does it change or is it a specific process? MRLs essentially represents like what you can find uh, when the pro on the on the crop when the pesticide is used as per its label. So if the label change, then it might require a new uh, a maximum residual limit. An example of that, uh, like a particular crop may be se uh, uh, sensitive to a pest that attacks it early in the growing season, and the pesticide may be registered for that only. And suddenly, a new pest. Uh, like an invasive species happens, it uh, it starts to attack the fruit later in the season when it's becoming more ripe. Uh, so then the that use is not on the label, so the manufacturer of the pesticide would have to seek authorization from Health Canada to be able to use it that way. And because it happens later in the season, you could expect to see more residues at the end. So that's where like we actually have to do another risk assessment to see, okay, because you expect more, if there's more in the diet, is it still acceptable? So that is one scenario where you need to uh, to change the uh, maximum residual limit. Another one sometimes is to facilitate trade. So sometimes the discrepancies between countries are not that big. Um, for example, like uh, you could like have a 1.2 ppm and a 1.3 in Canada. Again, risk assessment may show there's no issues, and the the uh, we might like the. Uh, the manufacturer may want to align the MRL to facilitate trade again during the winter months so we can get all those food that we need in the winter. And finally, uh, there is an international body that's called Codex Alimentarius. So it's under the uh, uh, World Health Organization and the food, uh, the World Food Organization. And they work to align codex, uh, MRL uh, to the extent possible at Codex to facilitate trade. So like some countries don't have the same amount of scientific capacity as Canada and they will often rely on Codex to actually set an MRL so that they can ship like their coffee beans, for example, in other countries. So that those are a few examples of where you would need to change an MRL. So when you do change uh, a MRL, is it mostly impacting growers? So first and foremost, it's the growers. Uh, they're the ones that are most likely to be affected because the change in, in limit in maximal residual limit is typically because the pesticide use has changed. So like if it's Canadian domestic use that changes, like for example, you need to apply it later, uh, that will result in a change in MRL and will allow the farmer, assuming the risk we found to be acceptable, to use the product. So that is uh, a positive for them. They get access to a tool that they may not have had before. Uh, for farmers in other countries, like the maximum residual limit will allow them to ship to Canada. And similarly, it will allow us to, sh like our, our farmers, to ship elsewhere. So, Fred, there was a recent announcement on lifting the pause on MRLs. Can you explain why there was a pause? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, a bit of a history. In 2021, in August 2021 in particular, uh, there was that announcement to pause uh, any increases in MRLs. Health Canada had actually, during that summer, had proposed to increase a few MRLs. Some of these changes were to reflect a change on how the product was used. Like there was one of them, I believe, was for a new pest that required a later application. So as I explained, you could see more residue. So a, a, a new uh, MRL was being proposed. And others was to align with Codex, so that international body that facilitate, uh, that sets MRL that to help facilitate. So 
that proposal already resulted in a lot of comment. There was a lot of worried Canadians as to like, what does this mean for me? Am I more at risk from pesticides? So, and while there was a full scientific assessment that was backing this up and showed the risks were acceptable, like we understood, the government understood there was like, there was worries and uh, decided to make, to put that pause to uh, really take the time to properly engage with the public, with the stakeholders on the issue and better understand the concern to see how moving forward we could better address that. Uh, part of this pause, uh, part of this announcement of the pause include other activities like creating more or finding ways to get more independent data, like for example, water monitoring samples uh, across, the kind of, well, across the country to see like what is out there rather than relying mostly on computer models. So that, that is a lot of the genesis of the pause, like taking the time to properly figure out what's the concern, how we can address this, and is there a way to make the science even more solid? Uh, so this this pause gave us the time to do all that, uh, have like st meetings with stakeholders, discussion with like a subset of Canadians to test new communication product, for example, to see does that explain better? Do you understand what's going on? And this is, uh, so all that work was done and now we feel we're ready to lift the pause because we have a lot of these products ready. We have access to more information in some cases and we feel we can better explain what's going on. So uh, that is why we're lifting the pause. So what does the general public in Canada need to know about MRLs? Uh, I would start by saying they're only set after an extensive review by uh, experts like scientists uh, in Health Canada uh, that are internationally recognized. And they only said if those people find that they're ex they, sh they don't create a risk that's not acceptable to Canadians. And I often like pe people don't sometimes understand what we mean by acceptable risk. Just in science, you cannot say there's no risk. Absolute, like zero risk does not exist in science. So that's why we use that jargon. I understand it can be difficult to understand for uh, the public. But basically it means like we've, we've looked at everything uh, that we had and we, uh, we found that if we propose an, uh, either a new MRL or an increase. And lastly, uh, like the Canadian Food Inspection Agency who is responsible for monitoring like the, uh, what, what's being sold in groceries, they have a very high compliance. So it's more than 97% of the food that's looked at that is found to be compliant. And even if it's ex not compliant, doesn't mean there's a risk. By at large, uh, like the food, the food is um, compliant and is safe to to eat. Your organization, uh, PMRA, you're doing things differently, and you know, for the last couple of years, as a result of its um, transformation task force. What are the key points of this transformation? So there's a few pillars, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, on their transformation. One of them is like looking at our processes. Uh, that's not very sexy, but we follow a process uh, that is largely determined by the legislation, but also like from a logical point of view and international how things are done. Uh, so that is one part of it. Uh, the other part is also looking at uh, being more transparent, better communicating. It's like very hard science. So how can we uh, make it easier to understand explain like the key components, the key points, the, the takeaway points, and like people are, are more confident uh, because we work for the people and we feel like the people should be confident in what we do for them. It's also about uh, 
getting more like most of the data we get is generated by manufacturer that they have to follow like very standard protocol if they don't follow the protocol we reject it we have access to all the underlying data we can make our own calculation we don't we don't take their conclusion we come up with our conclusion but how can we get more of that independent data like water monitoring like the core science doesn't change per se it's really how do we do this and how can we do this better how can we explain it better how can it be more accessible to the public and is there more information we can gather out there uh, to help inform our decision um are, are we able to summarize that a little bit so what if i give you an example like i love eating apples how many apples do I have to eat before I'm going to get sick from pesticide residues on those apples? So like for uh, the example of the apple, like you'd have to eat 280 apple a day, every day of your life uh, to like register as a health concern. So you'll probably like be sick from all the sugar in the apple and like just like bloating before you even have to start worrying about pesticides. So really uh, that is not something to be worried about. I love apples, but not that much. <laughs> Same for me. And I think that we can go back to Brian for the final word on this topic of pesticides, because I, I like what he said to you, Kirk, about uh, the current practices as compared to the past. A farmer is a steward of his land. The old go out and scorch the earth method of pesticide application is gone. We're now using more controlled methods. I'm very proud of being a Canadian farmer. Honestly, Canada grows the best produce in the world. That's a great note on which to end this episode. Indeed. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think. Are there other topics you would like to hear about? You know, we really love hearing from you, our listeners. And until next time, you know what to do? I am going to try something new.